Welcome all to the uh, meeting of the Audit and Compliance Committee. Uh, Ronna, can you call the roll, please? Yes. Uh, Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Blue. Here. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Splendorio. Yep, here. We have a quorum. Okay, thank you very much. This is Mike Moy. I'm the uh, general counsel. This is the first meeting of the Audit Compliance Committee uh, for this year. And so their first item of business will be to elect a chair. Um, as is the practice, uh, other trustees can nominate a, one of their colleagues to serve as chair of the committee, uh, or an individual can volunteer as chair of the committee. So at this point, I will ask if there are any nominations or um, anyone who uh, would wish to volunteer to serve as the chair of the committee. With, uh, this is Trustee Bouquet. With deepest appreciation in advance, I nominate uh, Trustee Fox for chair of the Audit Compliance Committee. Second. Okay. Uh, so there is a nomination. There is a second. Are there any other nominations or anyone else want to challenge uh, Trustee Fox uh, to be the chair? Yay. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll do the vote. We'll do the vote and then yay. <laughs> translate that into a no. So there's a nomination of uh, Trustee Fox. It's been seconded. Uh, Ronna, can you call the roll, please? I can. Trustee Bouquet. Aye. With appreciation. Trustee yes. <laughs> Blue. Yes. Yay. Trustee Fox. Stayed. Trustee <laughs> Splendorio. Yeah, with deeper appreciation. <laughs> <laughs> Motion passes. Thank you. Okay, very well. Well, uh, Trustee Fox, I will uh, turn the gavel over to you at this point. Okay, thank you. Um, question on the agenda, uh, which I assume was put together by Rick Kibler, is that correct? Yes. Uh, the only item that has a time frame attached to it is item C, uh, the discussion on internal audit and compliance reporting. Is the intent that that would take the whole meeting, or did you intend that there would be some time allotted to item D and the written written reports? Uh, so the time frame that's associated with that really covers the entire meeting, not just that report. It would uh, include a discussion about the succession planning and uh, if there's questions about the written reports, uh, but we don't normally present those. Okay, so I'm going to ask that in your presentation on item C that you plan to complete that item so that we have enough time for uh, the rest of the items between now and the end of the meeting. That would not be a problem. That makes sense? Yes. I'd like to shoot to stick to the timetable that's in the agenda. Um, okay. Uh, should we uh, ask for public comment, or do you want to wait till the end on that? Uh, yes, I'd like to ask if there is any any member of the public that wants to come forward to make a comment. All right, hearing none. Uh, does the uh, Mike? Does the committee have to make it take an action on that? No. Okay. No, there's. So we'll go to item B, which is approval of the minutes of the meeting of November 18th, 2020. Sir Chair, this is uh, Bouquet. I'll make a motion to approve item B. Do we have a second? I'll second it. Okay. Uh, do we need a roll call? Yes, please. Ron, can we have a roll call, please? Chesty Bouquet. Aye. Chesty Blue. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Splendorio. Aye. Motion passes. All right. Uh, that is the end of the consent agenda. So just for purposes of procedure in the future, Mike, um, could we have wrote, voted on the entire consent agenda in one motion? Yes. Okay. Yep. Remember that for the next meeting. Months from now. That's entirely appropriate. Okay. All right. We go to uh, Mr. Kibler for item C, uh, discussion on the 
uh, on audit and compliance reporting. And do I understand that this is an information item? Yes. yes. Okay. So, Mike, can uh, I get the screen? It says that the host is disabled. Yeah, try it again. Okay. Okay, can everyone see my screen? Yes. Okay. So we're going to talk about the internal audit and compliance summary. Uh, the first item is going to be the compliance calendar. I just want to set expectations and uh, identify if you have different ones. Uh, so this first column on the left here identifies the different things that we talk about at the various committee meetings. And then the X under the committee uh, columns, the dates indicate when we would talk about those. Uh, so if there's any old business, we would talk about those at any of the regularly scheduled meetings. Uh, we have Moss Adams, who are, is our current external auditor, come in uh, to talk about their audit planning at the June meeting and then present the uh, results at the November meeting. Uh, any management letter comments are presented at the November meeting. Uh, we talk about our annual risk assessment and uh, the annual audit plan at the June meeting and any significant results from internal audit and compliance will be at every meeting uh, and follow-up activity at every meeting. And then we do the compliance report and program update at every meeting. And we have an educational session that is optional. I don't know how much uh, background everybody has in uh, compliance. Uh, so we can do short presentations at every meeting, uh, and I didn't include one in the package for today, but if we have time, we could run through part of that just to give you an idea of what we uh, use for training our uh, employees. Okay. So I'm gonna turn it over to Akimi, now my Director of Compliance, to talk about uh, audit results. Actually, Rick, oh. this is this is Taft. Do you mind going back one slide? Apologies. Yes. Uh, on the on the March heading, it says two seventeen twenty one. That's supposed to say February, right? Oh yes, it is. Okay, it was and March originally, but we got moved it. it to accommodate my retirement. And and for Akimi, Akimi, we don't we haven't settled uh, firmly on the board of trustee retreat date, so that April 9th is actually probably in April 30th, um, that's coming sort of hot off the press and we don't know what the October is. So the audit and compliance committee responsibilities there, are you, are you saying, Rick, that would maybe just be in the form of an educational thing or we- uh, It's optional. If, okay. uh, if the board wants us to come and do a compliance uh, education at that uh, board retreat, we can do that. If not, uh, we'll do it at a regular scheduled meeting. Got it. We have a new uh, committee chair, and I want to be a whole. Uh, I want to make sure that he's knows the scope of his work. So that's why he saw he, it, it. I I told him he'd probably about three more meetings, and that has the appearance of five meetings. And I just wanted to make sure we're managing. For, so at the retreats, there probably wouldn't be a managed audit and compliance chair report or what have you. No, there's four meetings a year. Uh, Got it. Unless we do a special uh, session. Yes, sir. Okay, okay, apologies. Okay, Akemi. So, um, you know, good evening, everyone. So I'm going to start out with the, um, we did a denial review. And the scope of it is essentially 
looking at the how we do we capture and track denials <clears throat> and then about the ownership um, with resolving any denials that occur and then how can we we um, prevent uh, denials from occurring um, and that we are working them timely. So we did this audit scope uh, from uh, September to October of 2020. Sorry. And uh, so when we did this review, um, we did discuss it with the um, management and they have a, um, a process of how they're going to um, work these denials. And as you see here, I mean, they have um, daily and weekly um, dashboards. They discuss, you know, um, about the mitigation of them, what are the root causes. And so essentially they do have um, a pretty detailed um, process for their um, denials. Can we go to the next slide? And so essentially um, what we found in, in this um, activity is that they do have an effective process in place. So there is no recommendation. So this is good. They are working it um, efficiently. So the next slide. So we, um, this is about an information security uh, review that we do annually. Stop with a question, please. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Could you just spend a minute or two talking about how the organization uh, accomplishes its internal audit uh, function? Okay, so in our internal audit, we do a, we do a um, called a risk assessment. And so in the risk assessment, we um, do discuss with um, different department leaders. Um, for example, um, did one with the, our post-acute. So our post-acute, which is Richard Espinoza, he's a CAO, and we went through previously what we had on the risk assessment. And then we discussed with him each of those areas and whether they still apply, what kind of policies, do they do regular views, do they do education, and so on. And who, does, and, who conducts these internal audits? Okay, so internal audit, um, they are done among, we have two people for internal audit. We also have um, a, um, a revenue cycle uh, manager who looks at certain areas that we're gonna talk about, like 340B drug program. We also have another person who does investigation, but he does help with some other reviews like um, we're doing a security review uh, right now or change management review. Um, so we all play a role in making sure that we can uh, utilize everyone to do an internal audit review. And you basically have two full-time internal audits. Yes, we do. Who do they report to? And they report to right now to uh, Rick. Okay. Okay, thank you. So just FYI, I was the director of internal audit before I became the chief compliance officer. So I had the internal audit function reporting to me. And uh, now I have compliance and uh, and the transition Akimi will be over both of those areas. Okay. Chairman Fox. Yes. Mark Fratsky here. Just one real quick question for Akemi. Akemi, did your Denial review include administrative days as well as admission denials, and did it include John George? Um, so, Rick, I think you looked at that part more in detail. So we started looking at the process, and uh, what we found was that uh, denials was uh, a large a uh, portion of our AR, we were, we had a lot of them and it wasn't going to do any good to report. Yes, you have a problem, what's your action plan? What we did then was look at the process to see that they had a reasonable process for managing and getting the denials down. So 
Yeah, and I think also with the EPIC system, that's really helped a lot um, to manage um, the denials and to, um, and being that that type of reporting has really helped them to kind of put trends and to identify how they can correct those so they do not have as many denials on a, on a kind of ongoing basis. And can you, are you able to classify the denials by payer? Um, you know, the, um, the EPIC system does have a good um, way to kind of look at it by denials, and we do, because, you know, of course, if you have Medi-Cal type of denials compared to a Medicare, want to look at the trends and to identify, is there, um, is there a reason, and is it because we're not putting, like, the place of service correctly on uh, for certain types of clinic claims, for example. So there, I want to say that generally doing denial, um, kind of identifying what are the problems, I think those are pretty easy to correct. And we could, you know, slice dice how we need to. Mm-hmm. And does, um, uh, does Kim Miranda uh, sign off on that um, report that you guys do on denials? Well, I, it is, um, Kim Miranda is, is told, but I think the, the, um, the person that we work more closely with is the VP of Revenue Cycle. Mm-hmm. So that person is um, knowledgeable and the, uh, the um, manager of internal audit is the one who like requests to be part of their regular denial meetings to see what they're doing as far as the process. So he was involved in um, understanding each of the steps that they do. Okay. Let's proceed. Okay. So I'm gonna jump in here on this one before Kimmy talks about it. Uh, The prior audit committee, uh, we we gave them this report on our information security system and they asked for an update at every uh, audit committee meeting more so than just uh, to be tagged in the written report. So that's one of the reasons why it's here uh, with a little bit more information. Okay, so there, um, this information security review um, it, we do it annually, and it's done by an outside independent um, firm. And there are 12 areas that they do review on. And so there are parts of it that are in process <clears throat> and others that um, they have completed. So one of the good things is that we do have our policies in place, so that part is done. Um, they um, have not started, you know, the security risk assessment yet, but that due date is not until June, end of June. Um, and then we have various stages where the security um, review activity is being done right now. Can we go to the next slide? And so um, the one that's complete on, on this is the uh, security incident procedures. And then also the other one is the automatic um, logout. So these are some of the things that are easy to ensure that as AHS, that we have um, kind of a process, a procedure in place to meet these. And these are all part of the the, um, HIPAA security um, areas that we're supposed to follow, which is why this is being done. One of the reasons why there's not more progress on this is we have a security staff of one so far. And so he's doing as much as he can, as quick as he can, but uh, it's it's taking a while. Okay. Okay. That this project would take through through the entire year? Uh, Parts of it will. Uh, So... Some of it, he's trying to get a new staff person uh, to help him on some of these things. And we need some uh, software to do some of these things. But uh, 
there will be things completed throughout the year and all of them should be completed by the end of the year. Yeah, so the person that Rick is talking about is the um, EJAS, who's the um, chief information security officer that's been hired. And so, you know, one person is makes this difficult to complete, but then also he is um, leveraging, you know, one of our um, person too, who has somewhat of a background to help um, when, you know, what he can do to help EJAWS. Um, so the next one I want to talk about is about the 340B audits. Um, and so just to give you some kind of understanding about the 340B um, drug program, is that um, we uh, receive these drugs at a significantly discounted um, price. And so because we're able to do that, that savings that we get, we can use that for um, like uh, indigenous population that we have or charity care. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell about 340B. So uh, we have been doing audits of the 340B. And if you, some of you might know, we used to have Sorian. And so we were conducting monthly audits. And it's because we identified some problems. Um, and for example, not um, assigning the modifier so the modifier, it's a, called a UD modifier, and it's required on those types of 340B drugs to identify that it's part of that um, program. And um, if we don't put it on there, then we're essentially, um, when it goes to Medi-Cal, they already got that rebate. And so we're kind of, it's a duplicated claim, and we have the manufacturers that we have to make them whole. So there is, um, there's different components and I'll talk more about that as we go through this review. Um, but we also have the Epic um, now. And so through the Epic, you know, uh, there are some issues and we're working through um, this with um, our uh, pharmacy experts, as well as IT, HIM. So there's a group that's worked on this and we are um, putting um, processes in place to ensure that there is the modifier that's um, required for these drugs. <clears throat> and then of course, like I was talking about, it's a shared responsibility. That's why we have multiple people working on this. and. You know, we found that there was a lack of knowledge about all the different rules because the federal rules and then there's the state rules on the 340B and how we have to ensure that claims have the, um, the modifier is only for um, Medi-Cal, not for other um, pairs. And then also um, that we are um, putting at the rate of the um, actual acquisition cost, not well, that we're charging everybody the same. There's a quick question. Am I correct that this involves the fact that, that we're not supposed to be billing Medi-Cal for these drugs? Well, it's, it's like that. See, Medi-Cal receives that rebate from the manufacturer. So essentially on their report, they kind of exclude that. So that's how that works. So that modifier identifies that drug. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a um, kind of a graph that shows you where that's occurring when we do not have that modifier. And you see the red, that's all our ambulatory. So it's kind of high. And so we have been working uh, with these, um, these groups on a regular basis. There's also a 340B committee that's also working on this as well. Next. So um, like this shows, we do have an action plan in place and we have been correcting the claims and rebilling them. And um, we'll talk more about 
that. But the next slide. So the hey, next I'll take slide. this one. I okay. got this one. This is this is my settlement. So this shows you the magnitude of 340B. If we don't have the modifier on the claim, the state takes the rebate. We have to make the manufacturer whole. Uh, so last year, we uh, asked for a report from the state on all the items that were billed to them without a modifier. And there was 84 different manufacturers involved. And we calculated the liability at $2.1 million. Uh, so we've been working on doing settlements with each manufacturer. Uh, so far, we've cleared uh, 1.3 million of that liability. Uh, we ended up paying out a million dollars on uh, to those manufacturers. We have almost a quarter of a million dollars in progress, but they've been in progress for six months. I haven't heard anything. I'm, I'm waiting on them to confirm the amounts and offer us a, a deal. Okay, so, so we've if, got... if I could just ask this question. So effectively, is it correct to say that if we miss the modifier, then we've been, we've been overpaid for the drug and we have to, the settlement is our paying these manufacturers back? No, we, we didn't get overpaid, but because we didn't put the modifier on, then essentially we're buying the drug at wholesale uh, instead of at 340B. And so we have to pay the difference back to the manufacturer because they had to give that amount of money to the state. Okay. And then we've got a few that we sent it to their primary contact and the mail was returned. Uh, this liability will stay on the books for a while. Uh, sometimes we hear from them, sometimes we don't. We might hear from them a year from now. We'll still have to settle. So, and if the modifier is present, then what is that? What's the effect of the modifier being on the bill? That shows the state that it was a 340B purchase. And uh, then they don't get the rebate, uh, but they reimburse us a very small percentage of what we bill. So there's examples where we build uh, $1,600 for a drug and they pay us five bucks because they know it's 340B. They're just not gonna reimburse high. And Rick, it's James. You just mentioned that those liabilities stay on the books. When we spoke about this the other day, I think Kim noted that she has a, a process by which this will be essentially amortized down over time for those that don't make a claim. Is that correct? Yes, over the next few years. Thank you. I think she said about three years was her plan. Okay, so this is the um, California Department of Healthcare Services, and they actually um, sent a demand letter to us saying that we need to do a self-audit of their of the 340 um, uh, drug claims. And so we're not the only one who received this. Um, this is across California to do a self-audit. Um, for um, participants who are part of this 340B um, drug program. And so the audit is um, that we are required to do is for December of 2016 to December of 2019. And they specified that we needed to identify any claims that were submitted without the um, three um, UD modifier plus we also had to identify any rates that exceeded the, um, the actual acquisition costs. <clears throat> and then we also had to calculate any overpayments. So all these parts are in progress. Um, and can we go to the next one? Uh, uh, I think we missed something, Rick. Can you go up? Oh, I did. Yeah, do you, yeah, so... Um, in the results of the UD modifier, <clears throat> we have um, 
identified approximately 47,000 claims that went out without the UV modifier. So that's what Rick was talking about earlier in the slide about the settlement um, with the impact manufacturers of 2.1 million. And so in the demand letter, they also said we had to refund the state, but no, we don't because we they already got the reimbursement. We need to um, work with the impact the manufacturers to make them whole. So um, this one is about the um, actual acquisition cost and that the results of it <clears throat> is that we are still working on it. They, we had about 200,000 claims that we needed to review. And so um, our one person who's working on this is about down to about 90,000 claims that she's reviewing. Um, but understand that the Medi-Cal reimbursement is really low. So we don't really expect to have overpayments. And if we do, it, it will be very small. Any questions? Kimmy, okay. can you comment on the person power it takes to review this data? Person uh, power, well, it's one person who spends all her time, um, you know, probably more than eight hours a day to do this because, well, there's also another part. There is a person that has to, um, what's it, uh, get an auto report and specifically. So there is another person on the revenue cycle side that uh, she's requesting a report so she can identify all these claims. So that is somewhat time consuming from there too. So there is maybe two, two people that are um, helping with that. And of course, Rick is helping too. <laughs> so he and spends his time on that. What's the math on, is a claim just like looking at this and this, and is, is it like a 30 second evaluation or is it like a five minute? Because you initially it could said be, It could be um, five minutes because you have to look at the, um, the amount, but then you also have to know for that drug, what is the, um, the actual acquisition cost. So you have to look at multiple things in order to identify what is the difference amount that we would have to, um, you know, uh, settle, do a settlement with the manufacturers. Okay. So our person's a pretty good Excel uh, <laughs> spreadsheet analyst and she's using pivot tables. She pulls up a drug, pops in the AAC and does the calculation, but because there's so many different drugs involved, uh, I think we probably have over a thousand uh, variations of 340B drugs, yeah. uh, and you have to calculate a unit price for each one, and then go through the math to populate what our uh, potential liability would be. Yeah. Hey, Rick, this is Kim Miranda, and also too, I think that what makes it really difficult is the fact that the units are can vary dramatically in you know, how we purchase it, and if it's a single vial or multivial, there's a lot of complication to it. I guess just to get where I was thinking, I'd heard that the, I'm, I'm concerned of, I, I like to see, uh, I like to project on uh, project accomplishment, and you started out, I think I heard said you said 200,000, we're down to 90,000, so that means this person had negotiated 110,000 of these over blank time. I'm just trying to see how long to, to wash out those 90,000 if we had a projection on that. Yeah, we're actually uh, anticipating it being the initial analysis being done next week. Oh, uh, okay. She she works hey. long hours. <laughs> Rick, Rick or Akemi, could you describe what you're doing to assure this doesn't happen again? What kind of stopgap measures or measures are you putting in place to assure ongoing compliance with this? So there is a, um, there is a team that we've been working <clears throat> um, to, to ensure that the um, EPIC system can ensure there's a modifier and that it's at the, um, the AAC uh, on it and that we would have to do regular um, audits on a, you know, until we are, what do you call, um, more assured that we have 100%. Then we can probably get down to doing periodic reviews 
but we also working with revenue integrity to ensure that you know they are um, going to test out the um, the what do you call the the improvements to the Epic system, so we don't not have this. Um, so that part is all in process at this point. So there's a couple different ways to fix it. Uh, we'd like to do it on the back end because uh, we want to charge everybody the same. Um, and that's what, what caused the problem. But for 340B, there's this regulation that came into play. You might have to correct me on this. I think it was 2015. Anyway, that says, no, for fee-for-service Medi-Cal, you shall actually charge your cost and we've always just used our market policy and charged everybody the same, which is what you would, you know, what, what, which is the normal practice in the healthcare industry, except for fee-for-service Medi-Cal. So we built Epic the same way our legacy systems were built, and then we caught it when we got this letter. So what um, Epic will do on the back end is for all fee-for-service Medi-Cal, it will look, go and look and determine the cost probably be an average cost, and it will apply it to the claim. But all of it has to be tested. It's it being built now. So basically, uh, we've been doing 100% audits on the UD modifier. Every 340B drug that goes out of here, we've been verifying. And if it doesn't have the modifier, it goes back to revenue cycle to rebuild, correct and rebuild. And then if there's a issue root cause done and if there's an issue identified in the system like that drug doesn't have a modifier in the system we get it fixed right then so that future claims go out properly we're going to have to develop a new process for looking at this uh, act actual acquisition cost going forward because that is a new wrinkle that we were not aware of so all this is in process, and we've we have also um, reached out to other um, entities like UCSF, um, San Francisco General, uh, UC San Diego, as to how they handle it through the um, Epic as well. So there, um, we have done it as far, and we are uh, looking at um, going through some of the testing now as to making sure that the modifiers are um, put on appropriately and that the other part is the AAC um, and that it's only for the Medi-Cal with the, um, yeah, the Medi-Cal uh, claims that are going out for these type of drugs. Okay, well, we'll look forward to hearing more about the progress at our next meeting. Okay. Why don't we proceed to the next one? And the next slide, Rick. Oh, do. Okay, so um, I, some of you might have know about information blocking, <clears throat> and that is a, um, a regulation that was came in effect of November um, 2nd of 2020. And it's part of the 21st Century um, uh, Cures Act, and it requires <clears throat> all um, electronic health information that a patient would access. And so we really want patients to um, sign up for my chart because they can receive all their kind of health information online. And um, so, uh, we have already um, met this um, this uh, effective date, and that um, we have in place on an, and uh, an epic where, <clears throat> unless there's an exception that applies, it's going to go out. And these are things like um, lab re results. Um, it could be a procedure. Um, uh, notes. It can be progress notes, even by our um, or by our nurses. So all of this has to be made available to patients. <clears throat> and so we also have to monitor compliance. 
on this. So we do uh, meet weekly, and it's, you know, HIM. It's also um, David English, who's the chief um, medical information officer. And we also um, include um, IT that's part of this as well. And we have been looking at where um, some areas are that we need to re-educate that those departments or the individuals about the rules of not um, blocking a um, a note. So, any questions on that? Yeah, I think uh, education is a is a is a, a great opportunity here. I once saw a report on to some providers that they blocked information. And I spoke to those and they said, I have no idea how to block information. So there was something which had probably gone in the system because I myself don't know how to block information whatsoever. And I, I, and I went and spoke with some of the people on that list and they didn't either. So something oh. within our system, the default okay. should probably just to be on and to actively turn it off and then we can figure it out. Um, okay, well, I will um, bring that to the team um, when we meet. Mm -hmm. uh, the second, okay, so this is about um, price transparency. You might have heard this, it's been in the news too. And this became effective January 1st of 2021. And <clears throat> hospitals need to publish their standard charges. And so for, so consumers can see, you know, what our charges are and they can compare from other hospitals. And so there's two key components to this. And one, and it needs to be in a machine readable file. <clears throat> and then there's these uh, 300, 300 shoppable services. So we have to look at our kind of top, you know, 300 services that we provide at AHS, but it also has include 70 Pacific CMS um, services that they indicate. <clears throat> and so we have met this, um, this regulation, if you go to our internet, it's right there and it lists our um, standard charges. Any questions on that? No, I think most of, the, most of us heard the presentation uh, at the finance committee meeting. Okay. Um, and we'll give kudos back to Kim and uh, Terry Manifesto on that because it was Herculean work. So to all the trustees and anyone who's listening, Remember, all you have to do is go to Google, type in price transparency, Alameda Health System, and it'll take you, land you right on the page, and you can click a procedure and, and see how much it costs across insurance payers where data is available. Uh, so this is our compliance dashboard. And as you kind of look here, um, we are on the second quarter, the numbers are down. And we kind of attribute part of that to holidays and also that pandemic. People are working remotely and they're not, everybody's not in the office. Um, but you, we still, you know, this is our pie chart here. And you'll notice that almost half of the cases are HR. And those can be like um, harassment by a coworker or retaliation, a person, uh, you know, feels that, oh, my my supervisor retaliating me uh, against me or that um, it could be an issue that, oh, I saw somebody else um, clocking in, you know, uh, when they're supposed to be only clocking in for themselves. So these are kind of allegations that come up in HR. Uh, we do work with HR to ensure that they are um, resolved. Um, and so the other side here is, of course, privacy is another big area. And so privacy, you know, um, we do get it not just through our hotline, but we have various ways that people can let us know. Um, like, I think a lot of them use Midas to indicate if there is a concern, but also we have uh, um, an inbox um, compliance AHS and person can send us email that they have a concern. <clears throat> but essentially any time that, you know, like a misdirected facts that could be that type of issue, those still occur. And so we do need to 
um, work to resolve them, especially privacy cases. We need to investigate them in timely because if we have to report it as a um, privacy breach, we have 60 days in order to do that because we have to report it to the state. And then annually, we would have to report it to the Office of Civil Rights. So um, next slide. So this is a three-year trend. <clears throat> and if you can see, um, you know, really been working to get the numbers down. And, you know, and we do have um, Jeff, uh, who is our senior investigator, and he really does work with, with HR um, to have regular meetings with them, to work with our privacy um, person and, um, to ensure that we did our due diligence in the investigation, because we have to have it in case we're ever um, audited, reviewed by the state. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, so, you know, I want to just give kudos to the compliance team because they've done a really good job on trying to kind of get our numbers down. You want to say just anything, Just one Rick? comment to add on that. Uh, the compliance program has been in existence for five years and we started out very slowly, but we've been getting the word out. And as you can see, uh, the blue line is steadily increasing until this last quarter. Uh, but we're getting about uh, one issue reported every day. Uh, so it's keeping us busy uh, trying to run down those issues. Some of them are very simple, but some of them require pulling reports, analyzing data, interviewing people. Uh, so it, it's difficult to say how long a, a issue lasts, uh, but, you know, we've been working with uh, different teams to try to get all those resolved on a timely basis and get that inventory down. Are most of our issues reported anonymously on a hotline or are they reported by somebody that identifies himself or herself? Um, I want to say that um, hmm, it's about even through um, Midas and the hotline. Um, so that are the two main mechanisms that people let us know. So a lot of anonymous reporting, though, because uh, they're afraid that if they say something and they're identified that somebody's going to retaliate against them. Uh, haven't seen too many retaliation uh, cases uh, at AHS, but for some reason, <clears throat> they're reluctant to, st <clears throat> to step forward and, and say who they are. And that makes it more difficult for us to investigate because they usually give us half of the information that we need and we need to follow up and ask more questions and get more detail. Well, and you know, the, the um, hotline, it's the, it's a, um, it's a system uh, management system. So even though the person is anonymous, we can actually go in and there is a dialogue. So the person uh, who is anonymous um, gets a PIN number and they can use that. So they, eat, they can inquire about what's the status. And we have received um, inquiries as to what the status is of that particular case. And we can communicate that way in the management system with the person. Okay. Any other questions? That. Uh, okay, so this is um, our annual plan. It's on time. And um, so our reported issues. <laughs> Well, it's steady and it comes in, um, like Rick said, you know, we get about one case per day and yet we still have the other ones that we have to um, still resolve. Um, some of them are easy to resolve, others take time. Um, and so um, this other part is that our audit findings that is in your packet, all the listing of our audits that are um, been completed or still outstanding. We still have 20 open 
items currently. And, and 12 are related to the security review. Um, and then of course, five of them are related to privacy because um, we do um, privacy walkthroughs. But, and so we, when we did those walkthroughs, we identified um, how they can prove the privacy in the clinics and the, in the acute setting. And so, you know, some of these that we saw were pretty easy, like privacy screens, um, installing badge readers. Um, so <clears throat> those are still some of the things that are still outstanding on the our privacy um, kind of reviews that we've been doing. Rick. Rick. Okay, so that was all for the report summary. Uh, so unless there's additional questions, we could go into the next item on the agenda, which is my transition. Okay. Any questions uh, that anybody has related to the reporting summary before we go on? Okay, hearing none, let's go to item D. Okay, so I didn't have that much to say about this. Uh, I had been working the, with the, with uh, Del Vecchio Finley, the former CEO, on the transition plan. And our plan was to uh, post the job in November, hopefully have somebody hired uh, mid to late January, and then have them uh, attached at the hip to me for a few weeks to get them oriented to what was going on at AHS. Uh, with the transition of the board and the transition of Mr. Finley, that did not happen. And so uh, we made a decision and had this approved by the former audit committee that Akimi would be interim uh, compliance officer until a decision is made to do something different. Uh, so since I report to James this week, then that would be really up to him uh, as my administrative leader to uh, do something. But uh, the charter of the Audit and Compliance Committee requires them to uh, approve of my uh, of a hiring or firing of the compliance officer. So. Okay. We uh, have something in place temporarily until some, somebody takes action on it. So uh, general counsel, does the committee need to take action on this? No. You just need to be advised of it. There's no hiring being accomplished at this point. There's no firing being accomplished at this point. So basically you've been notified of what the plan is and at such time as a compliance officer will be hired, then you would weigh in on it at that, that point, but there's no action for you to take at this juncture. And then uh, if, a, if a candidate is identified between meetings, then do we have a... Uh some kind of an online vote or special meeting to meet and approve that individual, what, what, what would happen? Well, you know, I think that, you know, once you sort of get to the point where it appears imminent that someone's going to be hired, you can look at what the timeline would be. Um, and again, you know, the, you know, the, the role of the Audit and Compliance Committee is to ensure the independence of the person who's charged with, you know, providing this oversight to the organization. Um, and it's designed to be sort of, um, you know, for lack of better, the uh, uh, the, uh, the canary in the uh, in the mine shaft, you know, to alert you to potential problems or issues. And so, um, you know, basically, I'm assuming that at some point a candidate will be identified, uh, and you know, the you know uh, information would be you know communicated to you. You know, I don't know that it's a situation where. 
uh, you know, the committee has to act on a hire, you know, prior to that hire occurring, unless there's, you know, some issue which is presented. But I think the, the details can be worked out as you get closer to that you know, point on that issue. Okay. Uh, anything else on the subject, Rick? Well, I just wanted to say that uh, Akimi has been with me since the start when I uh, established the compliance program in 2015. Uh, she's been in my right hand, and that's why I felt comfortable in uh, appointing her or requesting that she be appointed as the interim compliance officer. Uh, we, Taft. Uh, uh, no, I, you finished. I was raising my hand to Mr. Chair for to be a question after you complete. Yes, sir. Oh, okay, okay. So one of the things that uh, we've done on education is what we call Leadership Academy. And it was a four hour uh, interactive uh, compliance lab. And Akemi put all that together. Uh, I would help in the presentation, but uh, she's she's been pretty much the brains behind compliance for the last five years. Well, so I, I think feel uh, on behalf of the board, we're fortunate to have you, Akemi, uh, to step into Rick's shoes, at least on an interim basis, and that we can have confidence that uh, the person taking over has full familiarity with the compliance issues and practices at the organization. So welcome in as interim <laughs> compliance officer. And Taft, you had a, a comment? Yes sir. yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, two points. Number one, uh, three points. Great appreciation to Rick for your service all these years. So we, 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 we want to give you appreciation for what you've given uh, and the hard work you've done. Two, thank you to Akimi for stepping into this. And then three, back to you, Rick. Is it of your opinion that our Office of Compliance is resourced for success? Is it, is it, is it, do you have, is it resource? I mean, you, you get to give George Washington's farewell address right now. So, <laughs> so you get to say what you like. Is it resourced for success? And this is the board asking you, what, what, what do you need for this to be the compliance program it needs to be for this organization? Well, and you're, you're retiring. To. You can say whatever you like. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still have three more days. <laughs> uh, we could use more resources. Can you be specific? Uh, yeah, I, I think that in my absence, we need somebody that knows compliance uh, that can work a lot of the issues that, that we encounter on a daily basis. Uh, we're required, well, people assume that we know every regulation that pertains to them and they call us into meetings and put us on the spot and want an immediate uh, decision on compliance issues. And they require a lot of research we go back and forth to clarify things. Uh, one of the things that's been helpful is that uh, Akimi's got 20 plus years of compliance experience. She knows a lot of those regulations, but when you start talking about the rules uh, relating to SNF or the rules relating to, uh, you know, uh, the ED or teaching physicians, or I mean, there's, there's uh, HIM medical records. I mean, everything has a different set of regulations. When we had an assessment uh, of the program a few years ago, they identified 283 different regulations that uh, we were, as a hospital, supposed to be in compliance with. So, so Rick, 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 would this would such data exist? And is there a single individual who would have that, or is this a consulting budget you're asking for? to ask for specialists who can answer, because that's a broad range of things. I would be impressed if one person could manage all those compliance issues across the spectrum of what you do. So is this a no, consulting I, budget? I, yeah. I don't think so. Okay, can we go ahead? Yeah, so if I can just say something, um, based on my experience, 
when we are a system and as a system, you know, we have hospitals and, and we have clinics. So we have an ambulatory and then we have SNFs and, um, and the rehab. And I think you need to have certain um, subject matter experts that really know that and really understand those, those rules. And yes, you know, I work with Richard Espinoza, but Richard knows it inside and out. So really, um, I would, you know, look at how we can have the, um, a person who can do more reviews, can provide education and work with, you know, like um, Richard to help support what he's doing. I think he does a great job, but then also we have ambulatory and I think they need help. And, but we do not have the, the bandwidth to provide the level of service that they would like. Um, Cause I'm sure, you know, they would like us to do some reviews. So then like physicians and ambulatory would know how, how, are we, how are we doing, you know, documentation wise, coding wise. Um, and, but we do not have that, um, that level of like auditors that can help and provide that kind of reporting to the leadership of ambulatory. Um, so if we could have a little bit more to kind of help the other, um, kind of uh, SBU, so to speak, I think then we would have a, you know, more robust um, group of compliance people that are there for everyone. Uh, Right now we have, what, how many, eight, including Rick. And, but we're trying to do our best to help everyone. And so, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that where I've been through all these years, I, I started out doing billing. So I understand, you know, the general revenue cycle, but as you go through, I've worked in the clinic, I've worked in hospitals, I've been a compliance officer of hospital. You gain that experience through time. And so unless you want to pay for someone that has that, really what you, to me, you need to have people that can do auditing education and have that kind of expertise in our main areas that we need it. I guess I'll rephrase. I'm asking for what would be your granular ask? Are you asking for 3.0 FTE, uh-huh. one in FTU? I mean, I mean uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about where rubber hits the road. What would be the ask? And, and of course, I'm not saying we can give it, but I need to know, I would want to know what it is that we need to get the compliance committee to where, the compliance function to where it is. And um, Rick and I have, uh, developed something before, um, you know, on that. And so based on, okay, hospitals and, you know, to me, it, it is like, um, you know, three minimum that can have that knowledge, ambulatory hospitals um, and the, our post-acute areas. So that can help support, you know, our system. Uh, begging the indulgence of the chair, sir, could we perhaps ask for that 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 business plan at at a follow up meeting from the Office of Compliance? What they would yep. need? Yes, and I think part of that could be if there is some benchmarking information uh, of you know similar size organizations to AHS. Uh, what kind of a compliance and internal audit structure do they have? And uh, you know, is there a rule of thumb like, uh, you know, one one compliance person to, you know, five thousand adjusted admits or something like that? Or that that I I don't know what might be right, but how do how do our resources compare to best uh, practice? Uh, uh, SF SF General uh, and uh, you know the public hospitals in Southern California. That would, because I think that benchmarking is an important way to point out if we do have deficiencies, uh, you know, what other organizations, if other organizations have more resources, you know, uh, for their size compared to what we have, you know, that's a good argument that we might need to do. Yeah. So, doc, yeah. so, Dr. 
Dr. Bouquet, this is Mark. I appreciate you asking the question, and Alan, you're spot on. There are benchmarks in the industry in healthcare, not only in terms of size of organization, but complexity in terms of specialty services and specialty lines, and you've heard Akima, Akimi talk a little bit about that. So, um, Dr. Bouquet, your question is a good one, and it's triggered, at least in my mind, and I'm sure James, too, is we really need to sit down uh, maybe before Rick goes and touch base on the plan that's been developed in the past and, and, and what it should look like maybe today. Um, administrators worry about what compliance finds, but we worry more about what we don't know and we don't find. Um, and if compliance offices are shorted, typically, um, you know, there, there's ongoing issues that can surface. So um, appreciate the question and we'll dig into it. Thank you, sir. Okay. All right. Uh, anything else, Rick, that, that, that you have to uh, want to bring up or get off your chest at this 11th hour <laughs> of your incumbency here? No, uh, the only other thing that was on the agenda is the written reports. And so if there's any questions about any of those, but I think we kind of covered that in the presentation. Mm-hmm. Any Anybody want to bring up anything in the written reports? Okay. Um, item F, Annual Audit and Compliance Committee Agenda Calendar. Um, I think that's included in the agenda package. Yes, sir. Uh, does anybody have any questions uh, about this information? Hearing none, uh, does any uh, anybody else, uh, either trustees or or members of the administration have uh, any remark, any closing remarks, or anything else to bring up uh, prior to adjournment. I, I'm good, thank you. Okay, James, you've been quiet tonight. Anything on your mind? <laughs> so, um, Rick and Akimi will tell you if they look at their emails or if they've been looking during the meeting. I've not. My keyboard has not been quiet, so I have a lot of questions and things I want to pursue. I didn't think that I should do it in this open forum, but um, <coughs> I look forward to coming back to you with um, a deeper analysis of some of the information that's been provided this evening. But thank you for asking, Alan. Okay. All right, I'll entertain a motion for adjournment. So moved. So moved. Second. Do we need a roll call, General Counsel? No. All, all in favor of adjourning, say aye. 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 Opposed? Good job, Mr. Chair. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Have a good evening.